Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Now, when um, Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. Um, This is Paul talking about this whole deal of law and grace. Now, this is after the Jerusalem Council. All right. So this is after the discussion on law and grace, after it was decided that the Gentiles did not have to do the Mosaic law and keep the law and all of that stuff. After all of this, Peter came to Antioch. I withstood him to his face because he was at fault. Um, Paul basically said, I publicly confronted the guy. I publicly confronted him. Um, he, he took after Peter. Now, now the reason this is important because it shows the people here that um, Paul was not cowered by Peter. You know, it wasn't, Paul was not intimidated by Peter. And Paul saw himself as, as, an, as I, he was on an equal basis with Peter. Okay? For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. When they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. What had happened? Well, Peter comes up to Antioch, and um, he's visiting the church. And uh, they're having a grand old time. And then some of his guys from his friends from Jerusalem show us up. And immediately what he does, he says, well, I better not hang around with the Gentiles because that will get these Jews all upset. All right. In other words, what Peter did is Peter allowed the fear of man to keep him from doing what was right. And, and the, the deal is, here's the issue. Before these guys came down for, from Jerusalem, Peter was eating with the Gentiles in the church. Now, most likely, what was he eating? Kosher or non-kosher food? Kosher. Probably non-kosher. I mean, if you go to a Gentile and eat... See, I understand how the way, the way it worked in those days. The, the, the Jews could not only eat... could not only not eat Gentile food, they couldn't even eat food cooked by Gentile hands because it was unclean. Mm. So, in other words, you could not invite a Jew over for din-din if you were a Gentile because they wouldn't come because... You're unclean. They wouldn't eat. They'd be afraid that somehow you slip some pork or some unclean thing in there, and you know they, they just would not. They wouldn't even associate on a social basis with you. I have a friend who is um, he's a Christian. He goes to this church. He's teaching English for rabbis to be in some place in England, and they are so orthodox that they follow all the exact little rules, and they cannot even use. The Cooking utensils or the same pots and pans or certain foods for other certain foods, like milk and cheese, can never touch the same pot or the same cooking utensils. I mean, it's extreme. Yeah, and you know where they get that? You shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk. And then they, 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 they say you can't even use the same pot and pan and utensil. I'll tell you what. I mean, I mean, it's pretty they fastidious. Can, they can hate this guy who's a Christian because he's a Gentile, and it doesn't matter how you. Yeah. Yeah. Do like cattle or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
But what happened here is this, this evidently happened. Peter was having a grand old time with the Jew, Gentiles, and he heard the Jews were in town, and so he, he took off and separated himself and, and went away. Why? Because he was fearing those who were of the circumcision, and when the rest of the Jews who... And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. And you got to understand what happened. And see, here, here's, we were talking about this last week. When you're a leader, you can't get away with things you can get away with when you're not. When you're a leader, you can't get away with things that you could get away with if you were not. All right? And the reason being is that here's Peter, an apostle of all things. And what happens when other Jews come around, he withdraws from the Gentiles. So what are every other Jew going to think of this apostle that does that? What are they going to think? They're all supposed to do the same thing. And it says even Barnabas was carried away and withdrew himself. All right? Yeah. In fact, he, he was carried away with this hypocrisy. Now, why is it hypocrisy? What is a hypocrite? When it does stop what they should do. No, we all do that. We're all hypocrites in that case. Well, it has to be one thing, but all together basically another. Yeah. <clears throat> it comes from the Greek, it comes from the Greek cinema. Hippocrates means to wear a mask. If you ever look at your old um, you know, books or like uh, um, encyclopedias, you go back to the Greek cinema, they would change characters by wearing different masks. They would put a mask in front of their face for sad or happy or whatever. And that was called Hippocrates, to wear a mask. And what these people are, is Peter saying, I believe in grace, but he's certainly not acting like it. He says he's one thing, but he's acting like he's something else. Hypocrisy. Does God like hypocrisy? No, no. No, he's, he's really not very happy with hypocrites. See, God can deal with sinners. Why? Because you acknowledge you have a problem, you're trying to do something about it. God does not like dealing with hypocrites because you don't think you have a problem. He said they were carried away with their hypocrisy. Yeah, Peter, you come down here and you believe in grace, and at the Jerusalem Council, you, you say a lot of good words. You come down here and what are you? Well, you know, you're, you're just carried away with this just like the rest of the Jews. You believe one thing, but you're acting like it's something else. Hypocrisy. And when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, not, you gotta understand. I mean, Paul was an in-your-face guy. And I say, Peter, you know, let's let's come aside privately. Let me let me talk to you about it. why did why do you think Paul confronted Peter publicly? Yeah, Peter was a high-profile leader who did this thing in public, and Paul had to confront him in public so that people would hear what went on and understand the issue. All right? Um, an elder who sins, how are you to rebuke them? Why? So that others may fear and tremble. If an elder sins, you, you confront it publicly. Who's an elder? Well, that's the leader, the pastor of the church. But you don't go one-on-one with -on -one first? You may go one-on-one, -on -one to, but if he has sinned, right. there needs to be a public proclamation of that. I think eventually, yeah. 
I don't. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Just rub the salt and cut. Um, no, it just goes back to you know a situation in our own church where, you know, you have to work through that issue. Um, by the way, out on the website, if you can read it, <laughs> get PDF working. Um, did you get the you got the notes, didn't you? Mm -hmm. Now look, now he didn't have any. Pro if Don can do it, anybody can do it. All right. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, all the notes are on the list. Yeah, that's just Galatians. Right off the internet. So they're out there. Um, but there's a paper out there that I wrote on this whole idea of restoration of an elder who falls into moral sin. And I'll tell you what, I can't find in the Bible where it prohibits it. Restoring an elder who sinned to, to being a pastor. I can't find a prohibition. Um, I don't think it's easy. I don't think, you know, you just bad and you put him back up there. Um, it's got to be a long process. He's got to one of the characteristics is above reproach. He's got to be able to re reprove himself over time. But to say he can never, ever again in the rest of his life ever do that, I, I don't see a prohibition against that. Now, some would argue very strongly the other way, saying, yeah, you know, once you've done it, you're out, forget it. And I'm saying, well, just go shoot yourself then. You know, if God's called you to preach, but you're not allowed to preach again, what do you, why stay here, right? You know, go to heaven. Um, but but Paul, Peter, or Paul, Peter had to be publicly rebuked because his sin was a public sin. It was public. Everybody saw it. He needed to be confronted, and he needed to confess it and deal with it publicly. And because he was a leader and it caused division, it needed to be in a public forum. All right? And he says, if you being a Gentile live in the manner of Gentiles, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jew, like he was, right? He says, you're a Jew, but you were living like the Gentiles before these Jews showed up. Why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? If you, being a Jew, acted like the Gentiles, what makes you now turn around and say, well, now the Gentiles got to act like us Jews? Yeah. And keep the law and the prophets and all of that. He says, Peter, you're two-faced. When the Jews weren't here, you acted like the Gentiles. Now you want to withdraw yourself and do all this legalistic mumbo-jumbo. And what gives? But Peter was a Gentile, correct? Yeah. Peter was a Jew. Yeah. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, for by works of the law no flesh shall be justified. Verse 16 is one of those you know, verses that just stand out, and you should underline it and memorize it. And that's one you should memorize, Galatians 2.16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, what does it mean to be justified? What's that mean? Declared righteous. It doesn't mean you're made righteous. That's sanctification. 
Justified means God says not guilty. Now, are you still guilty technically? Yeah, because you're still a sinner. But God declares you, as far as the law is concerned, He declares you not guilty. Why? Because somebody else is paying the penalty. Christ is. And how are you justified? Not by the works of the law. Not by the works of the law. Why? The law is a curse. The law is a curse. Now, what are the chances of me finding um, that little set of notes here on the curse of the law? Um, for those, when you start thinking about the, this law here, the, the law is a curse. The law is a curse. How can you be justified by the law? Declared righteous by the law. Well, stop and think about it. The law of God, His commandments. Why is why why is the law cursed? Well, number one, it demands that we do things that are contrary to our nature. Right? As it is, is it in your nature to keep the law? No. So it demands that you do something that, by nature, you don't want to do. You don't want to do it. Um, it demands that we do impossible things that we can't do. I mean, it makes a demand of you that you can't do, even if you wanted to, you can't do it. It requires perfect performance. You can't never make a mistake, ever. Not one. It demands perfect performance. Um, it doesn't care what your good intentions or effort are. It doesn't care if you meant to keep it. You broke it. That's too bad. Whether you meant it or not is irrelevant. Now, what happened in some of the Pharisees is they, they got to the point where there's actually a sect of these that said, look, if you intend to keep the law, that's as good as keeping it. And what were they saying? I can't keep it, but I'd like to, so ah, that's good enough. Whether I do it or not. The law doesn't care about your good intentions. The law has no payback plan to erase past sins. If you get a sin, is there a way to pay it back and erase it? Nope. See, that's what people don't understand. Say, well, if I good, good, do a good deed, it outweighs the bad deed. No, good is what, what you should be doing. Good is what, what God expects. You don't get brownie points for doing right. God says, I expect that. But when we sin, we go in the deficit and there's no way to pay that back. There's no way to erase it. It's an unrelenting taskmaster. Never lets you take a day off. You know, the law does not say, look, you've been good for a week. Look, go have fun. Live it up a day. Uh-uh. Never a day off. Never, never a break. It shatters happiness. Why? Because it says you're damned and there's nothing you can do about it. There's no way you can pay it back. There's no way you can, and I don't care what your intentions were. You broke it, man. You're, you're doomed. You're, you're stuck. It always requires the ultimate penalty. What's that? Hell, no parole. How many sins should send you to hell forever? One. The law only demands, it never helps. All the law does, it demands that you do this, do this, do this. But it never says, let me help you do that. 
It has no plan of salvation. Law has no, it's not built in it, a redemptive plan. Never had a redemptive plan. It isn't interested in your repentance. It doesn't care how long you cry. You broke the law. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not interested in how broken you are. The law is not. It offers no forgiveness. It offers no hope. Also, what it does, it stirs up sin, doesn't it? Paul says, now he's doing really well, and then the law came and said, thou shalt not covet, and guess what? Now I do it all the time. The law exposes sin, and the law stirs it up. It's a curse. How can you be redeemed by that? You can't. You can't. Now, how did the Pharisees come up with this notion that they could? Well, it was really easy to do. It's really easy for them to do. What they did is they said, you know, God's up here and I'm down here. But you know what? If I work really hard, I can, I can eke up to here. And God, oh, you know, I mean, he's forgiving, you know, he... You know, he, he'll let me slide a little bit, you know. So God, you know, he, he's not quite as holy as that. So, so we, we, we meet somewhere in the middle here. Somewhere in the middle, we, we, I, can, I, can, I, can, I can meet God. Now, do we do that today? When's the last time you heard a message on the holiness of God? Have you ever heard a message on the holiness of God? What does it mean when God's holy? It means God is utterly separate from sin. I mean, totally separate from sin. Totally set apart. Now, it's interesting because you look at the Old Testament, what did God say about himself? He said, I'm holy, you're not. And how did he, how did he illustrate that? Well, um, if anybody touches a mountain, I want them dead. Not allowed to touch the mountain. If they come into my tabernacle and they don't have the right sacrifices, I'll strike them dead. And he did, by the way. Yeah, in fact, some guys came up and they were a little irreverent with Elisha. And Elisha said, if I'm the man of God, I want fire to come down from heaven. And fire came down and burned all 50 of them up. So they sent another 50 and they got burned up as well. And finally the third guy says, look, you know, hey, I'm just a messenger. Don't blame me. The king sent me. Would you please? And, and he showed proper respect for God and for God's prophet. And Elijah went along with him. And then another case, you have a couple, some kids come out of the, uh, come along and they're, they're making fun of the man, Elijah, the man of God. And God sends two she-bears out of the woods to kill and eat the kids. You say, well, that's awful God to do that. No, God's holy. The problem is not God's bad. The problem is we are. We don't understand His holiness. We don't understand just how holy God is. And so what we do is we ratchet Him down to where He and I can meet somewhere in the middle. And we pat ourselves on the back and think that somehow we're able to make God happy. We're not. God is so holy and essentially, you look in the Old Testament, when, when God showed up in the presence of these men of God, what happened to them? You know, he had to scrape them up off the ground. 
They didn't have any strength in their body. They fainted. Now you got these guys on TV and they say, when God shows up, what do they do? Well, God's asking them, you know, what he should do about things in the world and how he should handle this and how he should handle that and getting their opinion on this. And, and you know, the God and them are just having a grand old time. Well, I'll tell you what, I don't know what kind of pepperoni pizza they were eating with whatever on it, but you don't, you don't, you don't have to walk waltzing into God's presence with familiarity and presumption. God's holy. And in the Old Testament, God had a habit of striking people dead that presumed on his holiness. Now, he doesn't do that today, does he? Well, not like he did in the Old Testament. He can. Look at old poor Ananias and Sapphira. They're probably the leading members of that church. How many of you sold property and gave half of it to the Lord? Anybody do that here? That's good. Why did God kill them? They lied. He's trying to make an illustration. I'm holy. Don't, don't trifle with me. And see, every once in a while, God reaches down and he actually does something just. What's that? Kill a sinner. And we say, boy, God's unfair. He shouldn't have done that. I mean, I thought he was a God of forgiveness and love. Yeah, he is. God's a God of holiness. And some guys asked Christ that. They, Luke, Luke, I think it's 14. What, what about those guys where the Tower of Siloam fell on? Were they bad guys? See, they had an idea in those days if something bad happened to you, you were a bad person. You yeah. deserved it, right? What about them? Did, 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 what did they do? And Christ said, except you repent, you'll die like them. What about those guys that Pilate killed? Think they were worse than all the people in uh, Judea? No. Nope. Unless you repent, you'll die like them. The whole point is, um, when God actually does reach down out of heaven and do something just, we think he's unjust. Because we don't understand he is holy and we're not. And what we do is we ratchet God down and, and we make him less than he is. And then what we do, we really cut ourselves a lot of slack. And make ourselves a lot better than we are. And so we ratchet ourselves up and somewhere in there, we get close enough to we think we can reach God. See, that's what the Pharisees did. And that's what Christ got after him. He said, oh, you guys, you guys see. You don't need anybody. You see. You, you got sight. He said, only the sick need a physician. You're well. You're, you're healthy. You don't need me. Being facetious with them because they thought they didn't need a doctor. And any, I'll tell you what. When somebody comes along and preaches this gospel today that, that um, really, you know, basically you're a pretty good person. Yeah, you made a mistake here and there, but look, you're good at heart. That just scares the bejeebers out of me because what that's telling me, they don't understand the, the number one point of the gospel. What's the number one starting point of the gospel? You are a sinner. And if you're not a sinner, do you need God? And if you can make God happy in and of yourself, do you really need a Savior? When you do that, you kick the very, very foundation away from what the gospel is. Paul says, I, 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 I can't be justified by the works of the law. All that thing's doing is telling me how bad I am. I can't be justified by that. How am I justified? But by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what do you believe about Christ? 
Well, he died, he was buried, and he rose again. Is that sufficient? What does it mean that he died? What's implied in that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's a lot more just that he died on a cross. I mean, you can believe a lot of people died on a cross. They did. Just because he died on a cross means nothing. There's some implications. And the, the, idea of whole, the whole idea of him being sinless, me not, um, substitution. Our propitiation, our satisfaction for the wrath of God. All of that is involved in him dying on the cross. He was buried. What does that mean? He was dead. He didn't swoon on the cross and was revived in the cool of the tomb later on. Some nut came up with that to try and explain the resurrection. Well, you know, he just had blood loss. He sort of passed out on the cross. And when he got to the tomb, it was cool and all of that. And he sort of revived and unwrapped himself from 400 pounds of, of tightly wrapped linen and, and spices and, and rolled a two-ton stone away, beat up the guards, and took off. Right. Right. The soldiers were professionals. They knew dead when they saw it. Because, see, there's a very simple rule as a soldier in those days. If you, were, if, you, if you were assigned to execute somebody and you didn't do it, guess who got executed? Yeah. You did. So you made sure. You made sure they were dead. None of this, well, he just swooned and woke up in the tomb theory. He died, and then it says he, was, he rose again. What does that mean? His resurrection, Christ's resurrection was a stamp of approval. Whereby God the Father said, it is really finished. If Christ be not raised from the dead, your faith is vain. Your religion is vain. It was a stamp of approval by God to validate what Christ said he was. Had Christ not risen from the dead, he'd be nothing more than any other criminal that died. There's a lot more in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ than just while he was died, he buried, he rose again. There's implications of those. And it says, we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ that we might be justified by, by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. And there's how you're justified, by faith in Christ. And not by the works of the law, for by works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now, how many, how many times does Paul have to say that before we get it? <clears throat> People still haven't got it today. I had a very wonderful elderly aunt that I stayed with when I was in high school. and You know, I talked to her many times about the gospel. and She just couldn't understand. She said, so you mean all the good things I do don't matter anything? She just could not understand that. <clears throat> She was a good Catholic. And I hate to say I'll probably never see her again. Because she couldn't understand, well, so all my good deeds don't mean anything. I'm saying, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I am saying. What you do does not matter to God. It's your relationship with Christ. Now, it, I mean, it does matter, but I'm, I'm saying for salvation... You can't do anything to earn it. You can't do anything to keep it. You know, um, we're justified by the works of law. Now, justified here is interesting. It's in a verb tense. It means it's a once-for-all act, never to be repeated. 
And see, that's why I don't understand these people say, well, you can lose your salvation. How can you lose something that's a once-for-all act never to be repeated? You're justified. It's not that you are being justified. It's not that you will be justified. You are justified. It's, it's done. It's a done deed. You can't, you know, the, the tenses, when you look at the tenses of justified in the Bible, all of them are in a tense that means it's a once for all, never to be repeated acts that happened at a particular moment in time. What do you think it is instead of man? It stands probably the answer, but the broader answer I guess what I'm looking for that what is it inside of man that makes him think that he he can do something? Even as Christians, if we're honest, you know, we, we battle with that well, maybe if I, I, I send a little bit of Well what, what is the root you know what I mean? What is the root of all sin? Pride. pride. What is pride? Thinking of yourself before others. others, or thinking that you're something that you are not. Where did sin originate in the universe? Satan, and Satan, what did he think? You know, it's really a bore being around here saying, holy, 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 I'd like to sit on the throne. And here's the interesting thing, and I never thought about it, so I was going through Isaiah, and a man in our Sunday school class pointed out, he says, you know what it said there? He thought in his heart. And deep down within, I'm, I'm, I'll, be, I'll be honest with you, deep down within every single one of us sitting in this room is a little bit of a belief that says, I am good. Something about me is good. Yeah. We all we all want to think that. I was gonna say how can any keep from that thing? You gotta really come to grips with how holy God is and how unholy you are. And you know what? This side of eternity you'll never hit it. I don't think. But something you need to think about. We are proud people. That's true. You know, going back to this idea of election, I remember a friend of mine teaching on this in the Sunday school class, and another one came out and said, so, so let me get this straight. You mean God looked down the corridors of time, and he saw that, you know, I was going to be a real good Christian person for him, and so he chose me. No. And my friend says, no, you missed the point of the whole lesson. See, there's a part of this that says... I'm not as icky and cruddy as... I, I really don't believe R R Romans 3.10 that said there's none righteous, no, not one, because I, I, I do some good stuff. It certainly can't mean that. And that's, I think, why God says, no, not even you. Not even you. All are gone out of the way. All become unprofitable. All of us are... Now, we're not as bad as we could be, are we? It could always be a little bit worse, right? The problem is, and I like um, the, the term used, it's radical depravity. Sin has affected every part of our being. 
and there's nothing we can do about it, and it's affected our ability to discern, that's the noetic, it's affected the carnal person's ability to understand spiritual truth. What's 2 Corinthians chapter 2 say? The natural man does not, 1 Corinthians 2, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are moronic to him. That's the word, they're stupid to him. That's why when you get on a Jerry Springer and you talk about the gospel, he laughs you off the show. Because you're stupid to him. His mind is carnal. He can't understand spiritual truth unless God turns the light on. And, and I think all of us need to understand, unless God revealed himself to us, we'd all be in the same boat. We'd all be in the same boat. Don't think of any, don't let any of you think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. But if we, verse 7, but if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we are, ourselves are also found sinners. Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. Certainly not. Um, What Paul is saying there is if the Judaizers were right, then Christ is wrong. If the Judaizers are right in saying that we need to do all of these works, then Christ's message of grace is not the right message. Now you're going to want to say that. Is Christ a minister of sin? Of course not. It says here, I'm going to read this. If the Judaizers' doctrine was correct, then Paul, Peter, Barnabas, and the other Jewish believers fell back into the category of sinners because they had been eating and fellowshipping with Gentiles who, according to the Judaizers, were unclean. In other words, he said, if, if this is true, then Peter and them, they were sinners because they were eating with Gentiles. You're not supposed to do that. If the Judaizers were right, then Christ was wrong and had been teaching people to sin because he taught that food could not contaminate a person. Didn't that, isn't that what Christ said? It's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but that which... All right, well, then, then Christ is wrong. It does matter what you eat. He also declared that all who belong to him are one with him and therefore each other. Right? So Christ is wrong. If Peter is right in withdrawing from Gentiles, then Christ is wrong. Now, I'm not, I don't want to stand up and say Christ was wrong. Paul's airtight logic condemned Peter because by his action he had in fact made it appear as if Christ was lying. He made Christ look bad. Now, I'll, that's interesting. Something about when you start adding rules on, you make God look bad. He says you're saved by grace. You say, yeah, grace and. Well, that makes God look bad. If, if what you're teaching is true, God, God's looking bad. Christ is not a minister of sin. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. What's Paul saying? What did Paul preach against? 
By the way, the word destroyed there means to null, to, to invalidate, to make void. What did Paul preach against? Salvation by works. So if Paul builds again and says, yeah, you, you know, you really got to do works, then he made himself a transgressor. He was wrong. He was sinning when he told people that they are saved by grace alone. He's made himself a transgressor. If I build again, if I, if I reverse my belief on what I, what I previously annulled, that's what it means to destroy. Destroy doesn't mean to destroy like we think. It means to invalidate, to make void. I used to believe I'm saved by works. Then I taught for years that I, you're saved by grace. If now I go back and say, well, no, nah, I was wrong. You're really saved by works. Then what have I done with all those people who I said were saved by grace? I messed them up. I'm a sinner. For I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. Um, verse 19 is best understood by going back to Romans chapter 7 where Paul used the illustration of a marriage. And he says a woman who is married is bound to her husband as long as he lives. Now if she marries another man while he's alive, what does that make her? Now we understand, Paul's now, understand the illustration in Romans 7 is not Paul's trying to give you a theological definition of marriage and divorce. That's not the point. What he's trying to do there is he's saying, in God's original design, one man, one woman, four life, and if a woman marries a man and then she lives with somebody else, she's an adulterer. Generally, that's true. All right? But now if the guy is, if the guy is dead, what, is, what happens? She's free to marry another. And the illustration, Paul says, you know, you're once bound to the law. But something happened. Romans chapter 6. You were identified with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And when Christ died, you died with him. And if you died, what power does the law have over you? None. I could come in here and I could go postal and kill every one of you shoot myself, and they would not put me on trial. I'm dead. Their law has no power over me. I'm not going to do that, but I mean, you don't go on trial. You're dead. Now, what if the law comes along and says, and they did this in the West, say, you know, you, you, you're to die. And let's say the law kill, you're executed, the law kills you. And a day later, you come back to life. You paid the penalty. The law said you die, you died. Now, the fact that you came back to life is just too bad, but you already paid the price. Here's the point. Did I die for my sin? In Christ, in a sense, I did. I'm identified with him, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. I died with him. I was buried with him. I rose again with him. Therefore, the law has no more dominion over me. The penalty, and here's what it means by dominion, the penalty of the law is removed. What does the law say? The soul that sinneth, it shall. I did. I, I died with Christ. So now the law is satisfied. Paul says, I died to the law. 
so that I might live to God. I'm dead to the law. It has no more dominion over me, no more fear of punishment. It's all been removed. I have been crucified with Christ. There, that goes back to Romans 6. And by the way, you understand baptism in Romans 6 is not water. It's identification with Christ. I've been baptized in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And it says here, I've been crucified with Christ. I, I was crucified with him on the cross. In some sense, I was with Christ on the cross when he died. My sin was there, placed on the cross. I was identified with him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ, so it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Who's living Paul's spiritual life? Christ is. But the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Who lives Paul's life there? Well, there he does. But how is he living it? In Christ. So who lives your spiritual life? Well, you and Christ. What makes you able to obey God? You're a nice person. You have the ability in and of yourself. Christ. If it wasn't for God, and this is something you need to understand about grace. The grace that saves you transforms you. And enables you to do things that before you could not do. As an unbeliever, could you make God happy? Could you please God? Not at all. But now that you're a believer and you have the power of Christ in you, can you please God by your life? Yeah. But now it's not you doing it. Who's doing it? Christ in you. You understand how good a thing this grace thing is? I didn't do anything to get saved. God saved me by His grace. Not only does He save me by His grace, He keeps me by His grace. So I can't lose it. Not only does that, he enables me to live the spiritual life by grace so I can now do things that are pleasing to him. And then because I've done that, he turns around and gives me a reward for doing what he's empowered me to do. You can't lose. You can't lose. Grace. I do not set aside the grace of God. What he's saying here, I do not make null the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Now that is a very profound statement. <clears throat> Stop and think about this. This is what Paul's saying. If God had, had made it possible for me to be justified by the law, why did he send Christ to die on the cross? Why? There was no reason for him to do that. Why did Christ die on the cross? Because there was no other way. That's what he's saying here. If righteousness comes by the law, then Christ died for no reason. Why did he even come to the world? He didn't have to. So stop and think about it. If God went to all the trouble to send Christ to the world to die and to rise again, is there some significance to that? Yeah. 
There's no other way. You can't be saved by righteousness deeds which you do. God went to a lot of trouble to send Christ to pay your penalty and if the law could have done it, he would have never gone to that bother. And what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 8, if righteousness could come by the law, then why did God promise a new covenant? See, even in the Old Testament, there was a veiled promise of something coming that the Jews missed. Because they thought, well, I'll just do good things and God will be happy with me. And then the writer of Hebrews says, well, if, the, if, if you can be saved by the Old Testament, well, why did they have to kill an animal every single year again? on the Day of Atonement. If that animal could take away sin, why'd you have to do it again? And the obvious answer is it didn't take away sin. Covered it, but it didn't take it away. Follow this logic of, of Paul's here. This is very profound. When somebody comes up and asks you, well, you can be saved by doing good deeds, and ask them, then why did Christ die on a cross? He didn't need to. If that's true, no, he had to because there's no other way. Well, believe it or not, we got through two chapters. We're only two chapters behind. We'll catch up. There's actually a couple of, there's a slough week in there we built in, so we'll catch up. I think time's up now, right? Right. Yep, almost. Um, see, the problem is I don't have the... Yeah. What's really bad is when the sometimes the preacher takes off his watch and lays it down. Doesn't mean a thing. Don't mean a thing. Don't mean a thing. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, let's close in a word of prayer, and uh, next week it's three and four, maybe five. We'll see. Father, thank you for this time and for the opportunity to study, and I pray that you you challenge our hearts from what we've learned today. Thank you for this time in Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.